Hello, Brandon. Hey, what's up, Tom? The standard for these podcast recordings is typically that I have a conversation with someone for couple maybe three recordings we call these the pilot recordings and then based on that if it's working out we both agree to continue on together <laughs> um, yeah. typically we think of a name we create a logo we put it up on itunes we put together a facebook page and we start having listeners suggest topics and this kind of stuff so it's cool. a format that basically writes itself and feel free to talk over me feel free to suggest topics feel free to take the conversation in any given direction so cool but it's probably good to start with an introduction associated with who we are and how we know each other for folks that are just listening to this podcast for the first time. So how would you introduce yourself? Well, uh, my name is Brandon DiCamello, and uh, I'm a boardwalk aficionado. Very good. <laughs> I uh, spent most of my summers on the boardwalk, and I dream of going back there all the time. Do you aspire to be like a boardwalk pimp? Or like a boardwalk hustler of some description? No, more or less a uh, boardwalk time traveler. Ah, interesting. interesting. Yeah. So these are the boardwalks of New Jersey specifically? Yeah, specifically. Ocean City, New Jersey, Wildwood, those two are Cape May too, but it's sort of small. Interesting, interesting. So in terms of a boardwalk aficionado, like when is the high point of the boardwalk? <laughs> A high point, well, in the season, it's like um, late in the season mm. when ev everyone's thinning out. And in the actual day, it's like uh, maybe about 1030 at night. Right. But in, in terms of like the peak of the boardwalk, I mean, certainly if you look on the West Coast, the boardwalks did particularly well in the 1950s. And then <sighs> basically they fell out of favor. Oh, this would be 1986. 1986, Yeah. <laughs> a focal point for boardwalk history. So oh, yeah. I only know boardwalks in Australia over that time period. My assumption is like people with mullets, maybe slightly like worn down fashions, maybe two or three years out of date, kids smoking under the boardwalk. I mean, is this the kind of thing? What, what does the boardwalk look like in the late 1980s? Yeah, that's exactly what it looks like. Uh, Groups of um, cliques mm -hmm. uh, gathering in certain areas. There's like um, guys with giant mohawks Pretty and cool. a lot of leather and chains. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and then there's like the surfer dudes. Uh -huh. And then there's like the vacationers that are just there for a week, you know, <laughs> and, and, and everybody in between. Very and cool. uh, yeah. So what do East Coast surfer dudes look like? I'm familiar with the West Coast variety, but what do East Coast surfer dudes look like? Uh, I don't even know if they, I, if they do surfing. I mean, there's definitely guys that go and surf, but this is more or less like uh, boardwalk guys that are probably never even owned a surfboard. So they're posers, where, basically. <laughs> basically, yeah. Right. see a lot of them. There are this, like real surfer guys, uh -huh. but uh, they usually probably stay in the ocean. You know? Interesting. Interesting. So where's Brandon DiCamillo in this boardwalk? Oh, I'm definitely searching out a uh, 1983 Nintendo Punch-Out arcade machine. Very good. And high, high scores. <laughs> Very good. Very good. So in terms of the folks that would be playing it, I'm seeing guys in leather jackets. I'm seeing guys potentially looking a bit like the Fonz or something like that. I mean, what kind of guys are gathered around the Punch-Out arcade machine? Man, I, I've seen them all. I've seen... <laughs> Seen this one guy in particular, I never forget it. It's like, uh, well, I mean, he looked like an older, like a dad to mm -hmm. me then, you know, mm -hmm. and, um, just, just 
he had the shortest shorts on I'd ever seen, like those jogging shorts, yeah. right? That, and and like no socks. Like I can just remember it. And uh, a t-shirt, and he was playing. And when he lost, he opened his mouth and it looked like his shorts didn't have pockets. He opened his mouth and he had a stack of quarters in his mouth, and he pulled one out and put it in the machine. And I thought, that's so disgusting. Yes. Oh my. God. It's a bit like when children lick ice cream so other children can't have it. He's marking the machine with his own saliva, basically. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It was, oh, it's disgusting. But yeah, you got you got everybody trying it out. And, uh, you know, there's so many awesome games coming out at that time. Certainly, certainly. So, I mean, in terms of Punch-Out, is this... Like, I understand some of these video games have, like, certain representations. I mean, I certainly remember Street Fighter and these kind of things, but from oh, yeah. my misspent youth as well. Although, for me, it was bowling alleys where you would find these kind of games. But in terms of the boardwalk, I mean, you mentioned the, the dad with the short shorts. Like, is, the, is there posturing? Is there posing, basically, around the punch-out game? I mean, are the players trying to enact the physique of the characters in some way? <laughs> only me only that's you. it only me yeah right. uh no i think uh i just kind of overwhelmed by all the uh all the artwork all the mm. sounds of the arcade so mm. i just sort of kind of gravitated towards that and there was a particular smell in the air as well right i mean it's kind oh, of yeah, something it's like about a, the carpet it's kind of a rotting smell <laughs> maybe old beer that kind of stuff Oh, it's like this ozone that comes off the monitors. And yes. It just is unforgettable. Yes. <laughs> yes. Yeah, it's so uh, heavenly. And I guess, I guess they're sweating as they're playing. So the sweat is literally dripping onto the arcade cabinet, evaporating back up. I mean, it's like an ecosystem, basically. <laughs> yeah. With a little, uh, high fructose corn syrup oh, from yeah. all the, all the soda being sloshed around. Alas. Well, here we're breaking character because in the, the rise of high fructose corn syrup started in the early 1990s. So oh. there were probably still sugar sodas back then. Oh, even better. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So all the barks I had back then were, were real sugar. Yes. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> yeah. So in terms of the obsession with the boardwalk, I mean, what you're describing here is an arcade within the boardwalk, right? Are these actually on the boardwalk, these arcade machines, or is it an arcade in the boardwalk? Yeah, it's, it's actually at, at certain points back then they would some of the games would be outside the arcade wow. and be on the boardwalk like bacon in the sun, you know, and they get really faded. But most of them, you know, Ocean City specifically had oh, God, had to have at least eight arcades on, on like a mile boardwalk, you know, wow. and uh, man, there's still I think three there, but they, they're just so awesome. I mean. Those were the highlights, you know, and then, and then you had the amusement rides and T-shirt factories. Certainly, certainly. So how do you recreate this? I mean, this is clearly something that's like seminal cognitively, but personally, how do you recreate it? Do you play the father with the short shorts? Do you put the quarters in your mouth? What kind of stuff do you do? I, oh, I can only do it mentally. I just oh, wow. play it with disappointment on my face. I uh, Every time I go down, I'm always, my wife says, you're, you're just looking for something that's not there. I just go, I go walking <laughs> up and down the boardwalk and it's all like dance, dance, revolution yeah. games. And right. there's nothing, nothing even close. <laughs> you know, these kids today, these kids today just don't understand. They don't get it. So that's sort of why it's uh, more of a time traveling thing, I guess, for me. The aficionado status is always really interesting. And certainly the way that we, I don't know, we talked in 2010, I think on my model rail podcast. 
Yeah. And the folks that I speak to through that, like there's a guy in Australia, um, our, our mutual friends, uh, the, the Webb brothers, you know, part of this Melbourne, Australia, he's recreating 1986, like the inner city train station and basically everything to great detail. And I was talking to him about like getting mullets on little train figures. Like he's got figures on the layout. And how about mullets and how do you reconstruct the fashion and all these kind of things? So yeah, it's amazing people. And I think the eighties has never really gotten the level of respect that it should in terms of being children of the eighties. You know, there are movies about the eighties, but they don't really capture, as you say, like just the embarrassing, I don't know, sweatiness, for want of a better yeah. term, of the eighties. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, I, I I totally agree. It's like I guess you just had to be there. There's no, uh, yes. yeah, <laughs> yeah. The stores, the smells. Oh man, it's so awesome. But I mean, when you were there, you would have been a a youngish boy, basically aspiring to these curious men with the quarters in their mouths and things like that. I mean, in terms of like being a boy there and the aspiration, the inspiration of looking to these kind of folk. I mean, could you talk a little bit about that? Uh, yeah, well, I would have been in 86, I would have been, uh, 10. Yes. So, you know, seeing, seeing all this stuff was like, um, yeah, pretty overwhelming. And I kind of just believed what anyone would say, you know, and, um, you know, I had some older cousins that would trick me into certain things about, you know, just, just different video games and just different, different things that, you know, we would do on a daily basis down there. And, um, but, <laughs> It's just, it's funny just to think about it all. You know, recently I was, I, I, I went to this, um, it's like, I guess a, a sort of a flea market. I saw these, um, I was digging through these postcards and I was like, just going for it. I was like, uh, I got to find Ocean City in, mm. in this, in this, in the eighties. And I found some cards and then I found, you know, and I'm just staring at the people on these cards and I'm like, man, these are like, I, I could just relate to, to remembering this guy in the ice cream parlor. <laughs> This yeah. guy standing in front of me, like, yeah. like when, when I was a kid, I was in the ice cream parlor down there spinning around on the stool and my ice cream, I was spinning. My mom's, come on, you know, stop spinning so fast. Your ice cream is going to fall out. And sure enough, my ice cream, not only did it fall out, but it flew right into the crotch of this old man next to me. Uh, it was just so, so embarrassing. But yeah. yeah, there's, there's just, uh, a lot of great stuff going on there. <laughs> postcards, I, I have a similar experience going to places that sell postcards because if they do it seriously, as you say, they're catalogued. Yeah. And yeah, they're... some of these places, like they do it by state and then region and this kind of stuff. So, yeah. But yeah, it's, it was, it was crazy. I, I'm going through and I'm going, I'm going, they got them by states. They got them by years. <laughs> they got some cities <laughs> in the states. And I'm like, I'm, I'm already down in Ocean City. I'm already down there, and I'm like pulling things out. I'm like, oh my god, I drank out of that water fountain right there. <laughs> so, I, so I got a few. I took them home. I was like, wow, remember, remember this, remember this water fountain? We used to pull our bikes over and drink out of this. It's been gone for like 30 years, <laughs> and uh, this is this is crazy. But yeah, they're totally cataloged, and I, I never seen anything like that. And there's thousands of them. You I know? think it's to do with the people that collect postcards. Got to I mean, be, as, as you say. What my initial response was: this is insane. You can go yeah. as you go into years and things like that. Yeah. But I think people that collect postcards, I mean, as we're talking about, you know, Ocean City in the mid 80s, there must be, you know, tens of thousands of people that collect very specific postcards in very specific areas at very specific times. Because it's a money making real... business, right? They're actually selling oh. these postcards. 
yeah, I mean, I bought some right there. And, and you know, I spent so many years buying baseball cards. Mm. And then when I was digging through, I said, boy, I, I never even thought that, that this existed or else I would have never went looking for those like Mark McGuire rookie cards. Mm. I would have just went <laughs> looking for postcards. They're so much better. Certainly, yeah. Because as you say, they capture a particular insight. My favorite is the ones that are written on. Like, oh, yeah. I've got postcards that where it's torrid love affairs like letters home to, you know, family members and stuff. The intimacy of the postcard, it's like a snapshot in time for some person telling some detail to some relation somewhere or some loved one. Or The nature of the postcard is it's a perfect snapshot into someone's psyche at one particular time. <laughs> exactly. I, it's like a bonus to this cool frozen picture of, of, of what you love, you know, and then you flip it over and I... There's Hank, right? Knew his wife exactly. <laughs> four years ago. Yeah, but I love the writing, man. Love it. Certainly. Certainly. So I haven't really given an introduction, but based on your introduction, um, we share a mutual friend. And in fact, we share a couple of mutual friends, but we share like a mutual friend in terms of actually like me being in the same space with him and you being in the same space with him. And actually, this points out, I am a toy soldier aficionado, like a lead toy soldier aficionado. And our mutual friend enables me to do this at work. It used to be like once a month and now it's twice a month. Because through the same period of time, actually, through the late 80s, I would go over to a friend's house and see these intricate, tiny little soldiers that came from England. And they were very expensive and just completely out of the reach of me. And then I kind of mowed lawns and saved up my money and bought a few of these very small toy soldiers and then proceeded at age 17 to give them away to my girlfriend's brother at the time. Who proceeded to like cheat on me and do a variety of different things that were just really horrible. And I wish I had those toy soldiers back. So based on this whole turpitude thing, I moved to the UK in the early 2000s. And, uh, 2001, 2000, 2001, sometime in that time period. Anyway, and I had a, like a disdain for the toy soldiers as well, because a friend of mine worked for the <laughs> toy soldier manufacturer. He had a falling out and there were a bunch of like old sweaty dudes who were in their late thirties, early forties, basically as I am now. They collected the toy soldiers as well. I didn't have any interest in that because I had bad experiences with them. But just by living in the UK, I was surrounded by not only the people that sculpted these toy soldiers, but the people that painted them. And I started communicating with them and I developed a bit of a collection problem. Anyway, come forward now, living in the San Francisco Bay Area, I got a bunch. I'm literally looking at my shelves here of them kind of laid out in boxes. And I thought the only way I can make this addiction legitimate in some form is if I run a Dungeons and Dragons game at work. And I've been running the Dungeons and Dragons game at work for about six months. And our mutual friend Art uh, has been here for about a year. And I've, I'm a bit of a recluse. I'm not sure about you, but I'm a bit of a recluse. And the only way I could really get to see art in some coordinated fashion, like we tried to meet for a drink at some stage. It never worked out. We were always, and he's got a young family as well. So I thought, okay, I'm going to run a D and D game. And I posted it up on Facebook and I was like, I've never played a D and D game, which is really interesting because I, his brother's Monica is like a Dungeons and Dragons character name. If ever there was one, right? I mean, Ray yeah. is like the D and D character name. <laughs> So anyway, we got together and the D&D game's about, I think it's about 12 people now. It's going to be about 15 people. It's growing and growing. 
because people are telling their friends and all this kind of stuff. So it's like a growing group. But every couple of weeks, I get to bring out some toy soldiers and put them down and build forts around them and all this kind of stuff and run a Dungeons and Dragons game equivalent to as a similar time period, you know, when I was 10 through to 15, as I used to run it back then. But I'm now doing it with a bunch of adults that really love it and supply alcohol and pizza and things like that. So it's like a social outing. But as you say, reliving this thing associated with some time in the late 1980s. And yes, that is that is how we have a mutual friend. Art, uh, as, as far as I can remember, Art is like, just breathes Dungeons and Dragons. And I've never... I never played the game. Yeah. I'd look at the books. Uh, I'd look, love the pictures. Yeah. And I played the video game for in television. That's all yeah. I wanted one year. And my brothers, you know, had, had, I guess Dungeons and Dragons had gotten some bad press in the news. Way oh, it was back all then. about, it was all about <laughs> Satan worshipping. Yeah. So. No, it was all Satanism. <laughs> so my, my, my brothers tell my parents, you better not get them that for Christmas, you know. This is the Intellivision game, you know, yes. completely. But I said, I couldn't believe it. I was so mad. I, I kind of did the, the crossed arm middle finger s- salute where you yeah. put the one arm over the other, you know, but I didn't put the finger up, but I was yeah. so mad. Oh, they freaked out on me, but, but they ended up getting it for me. And I said, see, it's just you run around this maze, but I, I love the cartoon. I collected, uh, collected the solid rubber figures. And yeah. when Art had told me about what you guys were doing, I, I'm a huge action figure. Mm-hmm. Of course. I mean, lover. And, uh, so I went and dug dug out all these old figures, and I said, "Look, they still got sand on them from the beach yes. from 1980 mid 80s." And uh, I said, "So, so I sent a picture over to Art, and I said, this, I'm, I'm so jealous that you guys can sit together and play Dungeons and Dragons.' I never played it, so I don't know how cool it is, but I love board games, and I yes. love building forts for yes. the action figures. And so I'm like, oh, that's it. this is that's it, man. That's it.' <laughs> yes. So." Thank you, Art. <laughs> it's interesting, actually. We're talking about the eighties. I've I've gone through a similar like mindset recently. Uh, do you remember the show Unsolved Mysteries? Oh yeah, so scary that music. So it's on Amazon <laughs> currently. I've watched the first, second, and third season of Unsolved Mysteries, and ah. through that, and also Forensic Files is free, but it's not quite Unsolved Mysteries. Unsolved Mysteries is far more. Well, I mean, it's all nineteen eighties like culture, yeah. basically. I think it ends around, they did one on uh, Kurt Cobain's murder as an unsolved mystery. But okay. it's full of, you know, he was a Satanist and also played Dungeons and Dragons. You know? <laughs> <laughs> and it's like continuously layered on that D&D <laughs> and Satanism. And then, like, they'll interview the games master and he'll be, like, face blackened, you know. Oh, yeah. All Voice all this stuff. And <laughs> what's interesting is the people that made D&D, particularly in the late 70s, and now they speak at conventions. Gary Gygax is dead, but the people that worked around him speak at conventions. And they, many of them have the view that they are responsible for like large swaths of modern popular culture, like Harry Potter, for example, because they believe that they made fantasy. Well, firstly, the best publicity that they had was all the Satanism stuff, because as you note, like, kids just want to find out what this illicit thing oh, is. Of course. <laughs> I mean, marketing something with the ploy of the war on drugs. You want to have the illicit aspect of the drugs. You want all these kind of things. You want parents to say, no, this is not the way to go. Because that just sells your stuff. Totally. And um, 
you know, D&D for me is very much a, a social thing. And it's very strange, actually, to do it at work because really it's a catharsis more than anything. The, the, my co-workers and art and various other folk that I bring in, it's just a means of at the end of a day, you know, now twice a month, we can all get together and continue like this episodic. It's all storytelling as well. I mean, it's a large part of it is associated with creating an interesting narrative. When you have 12 different people, I mean, sometimes it's eight, it's eight to 12 people playing. It's quite difficult to keep everyone interested. I mean, you've got to create a really intricate environment with a lot of cognitive, I'm a thief, so I have to do this, or, you know, I'm a magic user, so I have to do this. We have a guy who we play with who's like the tank, and he just goes in with a, a huge staff with a dragon skull on the end and just starts beating, you know, killing multiple creatures with <laughs> single blows and things like that. So, I mean, it has every aspect. And what's particularly fascinating is that, I mean, Art had never played D&D previously. Like, he was obsessed with it, and he's interested, obviously, in computer games and this kind of stuff. But he is like, as you say, he's a natural in this environment because he he doesn't play a very strong macho character. He plays a bard. So, you know, he plays his, he's got, was it the garage band, like, lute thing, the guitar thing that he'll strum occasionally (laughs) and this kind of stuff. Like, he really seriously gets into it. And I just assumed that all you guys, I mean, particularly, you know, Art's brother, Rake, I mean, his moniker, the whole thing made me think that you guys were like, huge D&D players and art says well there were various attempts but they were all like failed attempts at yeah and and you know it seems like at that time it was like you heard about D&D yeah. and your friends heard about it and everybody wanted to find out about it and no one really got it and and then before you know it it was like video games were like big and yes. then there was just so much other stuff was coming out yeah. that was that everybody got hooked on I feel like it was so close to be like breaking through for us, but then just other stuff came and, uh, yeah. you know, <laughs> and we I never mean, got it. Certainly, certainly for me, kind of culturally, my parents didn't watch television. They read the newspaper occasionally associated with like this crazy D and D, you know, kids living in tunnels for four years and all this kind of stuff. Yeah. <laughs> but for me, it was just. It was a means of getting, like, because it was written material and stuff, it looked like I was reading books and because, you know, my friends were into it as well. But as you say, it was very much a something in the know. And because I started, I started reading these books probably when I was about five, six, seven. I mean, I started really young and I had a friend who was like a child prodigy maths genius kind of guy who I used to play with when I was five, six, seven. And he would tell me things like, you know, the, the water that comes out of the hose is a parabola. I'd just be like, what the fuck? <laughs> what the fuck is it saying? And then, then we'd go and play D&D and it would all make sense. And so my whole introduction to it, and then I realised actually that most kids don't have, like, I mean, as you say, the toy, the figures, the plastic figures and stuff, and as you say, building forts and these kind of things for them. But to give, like, full universe power to kids... To create huge, I mean, I have books of maps where I just basically create these dungeons and castles and wilderness areas and all these kind of things. And then the big turning point for me was, as you note, computers and computer games. Because from playing D&D, from knowing about creating these environments, I then had the ability to program. 
And learning to program at a relatively young age went hand in hand. There was a book which is now available open source called Write Your Own Computer Fantasy Games, which came out in 1982 or 1983. And that basically changed my world because D&D, fantasy games and computers put the two together and the world lost me after that. I mean... (laughs) (laughs) Well, I can't blame it. (laughs) No, I was just obsessed. I was obsessed. And my parents were dead against computers. I mean, they really... They didn't watch television. They were against computers. So I went into the local university. I had to fight to go into the local university. I had to befriend academics. I had to go to, like, extremes in order to get access to computers to fulfill this kind of crack habit associated with writing games and programming games. And uh, all heavily, heavily intertwined. Oh, uh, it's so cool. It all comes from the early 80s. <laughs> it all comes from the early 80s. That mysterious melting pot of mullets, sweat, and guys with quarters in their mouths. It's funny. You hear, like, um, you know, you hear people, you see these documentaries on, like, Woodstock and, and yeah. things like this, and you hear people say, 60s, man, they were, like, it was the best. It was the best decade, and I'm. I think to myself, "You're crazy. There's nothing like the '80s, man." <laughs> I was like, there's, "There's nothing like it." I was like, "Yeah, sure, you had LSD, but come on, dude. You had in television, Roots yeah. Cube. I mean, the real problem was AIDS. I mean, I think basically AIDS ruined the 1980s. The 1980s without AIDS would have been the 1960s, but unfortunately, I think AIDS came and basically ru- ruined the for broad procreating reasons i've gotten into similar discussions but i always think that aids kind of ruined the 1980s fundamentally yeah yeah well it didn't help that's for sure <laughs> but yeah Remember. without aids the 1980s yeah. would have been way better than the 60s without well, way better <laughs> oh man i always say like uh i'm like man i like the exact spot where I live is like the perfect dimension and, and the exact time. I'm like, even a few months, if I was born later, would offset things for me. <laughs> I might have missed like key releases of toys and, and cartoons, you know, and just all these like, you know, D&D and, and just all that, you know, so. Can we talk about Masters of the Universe as a brand? Because, I mean, this, you had an image, I can't recall where it was, of the skeletal with like the flipping armor where he gets like more and more Battle damage on his. Front. Oh yeah, I think it is battle. battle is it battle, battle damage ba- Skeletor? Is that what it's called or something? I like think that? It's battle armor Skeletor. Battle armor Skeletor. Yeah, yeah. There was a He-Man and a Skeletor, and yeah. uh, you know the he the the talking about the, uh, this with a friend of mine. So we're discussing like you know how they piece together action figures, and he's kind of ripping on He-Man guys. He said, you know they're they're so cheap. It's like all the same figure over and over with like three different legs. And they put a different head on top. And I said, ah, screw you, man. They're so awesome. But the He-Man figures have like a spring-loaded thing in them. Oh, yeah. So when when you twist them, you know, it swings forward and then you can punch it and the chest rolls up and you get the battle armor, Skeletor, and then it wears out and it never goes right back to the undamaged area after you hit it enough. (laughs) The smell as well of those figures, like they had a particular kind of plastic, which no doubt was carcinogenic. Oh, and it yeah. just had like a unique, and it's a common, as you say, the rubber heads, like the rubber heads with the plastic bodies created a very unique smell. Oh yeah. The, those rubber heads were awesome. It's funny. They had, um, some of the Ninja Turtles that came out later on, Certainly. they would have rubber, rubber heads. And then when they, they had like a, the real early ones had rubber heads. And then after that, they was still the same, same run, but 
they had solid plastic heads. And you knew you had like an original if you had like a soft rubber head. But you know, those He-Man guys, some of there's one guy, his name is uh Stinkor. He's a mm. skunk. Mm. And um, you know, you take him out and he smells. He smells like uh this cologne dr- Dracar, I think it is. <laughs> it's just, it's, I never really knew that then, because I think Dracar came out later, or at least I saw it later, but so we were talking, I said, it's unbelievable, because I still have my Stinkor. Yeah. And I said, it still smells. Not as strong, but it still smells. And I said, there's like scratch and stiff stickers that don't smell anymore. I said, I don't know what is in this thing that, that releases that, but it is, oh, I'd love to know. So funny. Yeah. So, I mean, in terms of, in terms of your collection of figures... It seems that most of them are, like, out of the box. Like, you're not, like, a box figure collector, right? You want them out of the box. Yeah, I, I, I go through... Oh, it's so tough, Tom. I go through... I go through these, like... I constantly am analyzing them. Like, okay, here's what's going to happen with my toys. I'm going to buy them. I'm going to open them or not. And I'm going to die. And someone's going to take them and put them in the trash. Yeah. <laughs> I said, the odds of someone caring about them and doing something... well doesn't even matter anyway i'm not gonna certainly so do you find you're trying i mean i'm at the similar point in my life but i'm trying to find people that might be interested i mean this is also the dnd game but also like you want to find young folk right you want to yeah. find young folk that you can pass these things on to where they will get the same enjoyment out of them ideally right or are you just you're past that whoever gets them will just throw them away is that the thought well you know i think i think i've come up with sort of a solution so I've, i got a lot of them sealed and mm. it's not the money value of having it sealed. I'm going to resell this because I'm never going to resell them. I can't, I can't bring myself to do it. So I like the artwork when they're sealed, the whole package, the whole, you know, cause sometimes you open a guy and you're like, well, there's a few standing around me right now. And I'm like, well, Cobra Commander looks awesome standing here, but he would look so awesome if his background picture was there with the explosion and him bursting through it, you know? And so now I open them up. Some of them. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I have so many, so it's easy to keep a lot sealed. But I'll open them up, and on occasion, I'll just, you know, just just rip one o- open. And I decided that since most of my friends are the same age as me that that are interested, I said, <laughs> even if they outlive me, how many years is it going to be? And mm-hmm. when is you know? So so I said, I'm gonna I'm gonna do whatever I want with them. So I've gotten some fireworks. Mm-hmm. And um, I got a paintball gun and I got a bunch of other stuff and um, some hot glue. And I said, you know, I love playing with cameras. So I'm going to shoot some video of all this stuff and uh, I'm actually going to play with them. So <laughs> that that's what I'm going to do with them. And the ones that don't get destroyed, you know, I'll I'll pass them on to my buddies or just give them away, you know. Mm. But I think there's a large enough community now that you could find someone uh online you know you didn't know that you could you could send them away and you know but that's sort of that's kind of talking talking to art before our conversation he thought that there might be a market i'm not sure even sure what they're called like the one sixth like foot tall military figures He, he was like pitching me on various podcast ideas associated with this thing and he said, you know, how about the, like, one six military figures? Like, can you do a podcast about that? And I said, like, my perspective associated with these folk, have you ever, have you ever delved into, I mean, obviously you use these figures in, you know, filming and what have you. Do you actually, you collect the one six figures? What are the one six figures? They're like a foot what? tall. They're like, and they're typically 
like a variety of like military. They're slightly larger than a standard action figure. Right? They're much larger than a standard action figure. But they're typically, like when I Google them, um, they typically are associated with like folks that would normally be reenactors, typically like Nazi reenactors. But they have, they drive around them around in tanks and things. I mean, there's a whole like subgenre of figure collectors associated with Militaria. Are and they, um, are they like new released figures or are they, is this, are they're they new release? No, they're new. Uh, they've been releasing them for probably more than a decade now. I'm trying to remember. Okay, I know what you, you're There was another about. guy who did like a feature film where it was all, and it was really bizarro. It was a feature film where it was all figures, and at the end, and this is like you know napalm death of these figures and this kind of stuff. And it was really long and drawn out. I'm trying to wonder whether I saw it through Netflix or where I saw it, but it was like I think I must have gone the DVD at some stage, and it was this basically autistic guy <laughs> who had created this long-standing drama associated with the figures and they had like violent fight scenes and like they ripped out each other's hearts and things i mean really oh. it was like war porn in some very fundamental sense yeah but he was i thought he was based in your part of the world as well but it was a feature-length film it was like 90 minutes these figures <laughs> basically cutting each other up and and oh. God, i wish I'd i could like remember what it. the story was I've, I've got to go back and find this in my uh in my watching history, because I remember, I don't even know how I found out about this. This would have been probably five, six years ago that I found this guy. I must have watched a YouTube video on him. And then I thought this is too ridiculous. And then looked up in the Netflix catalog and, oh, I can get the DVD. <laughs> so I got the DVD and I'm like, this is, and that's surprising because I probably should have contacted you at the time because I, I think we'd already been in communication by then. Because I thought this is exactly like what Brand could be doing with some of his collection. But it was really, there were a series of action films that came out in the 2000s that just made absolutely no sense. There was no plot. Everything was secondary to just vast death scenes and, you know, people being slaughtered. And the distinction, I think, the 80s and the 90s, those kind of action movies, like typically like they had some plot somewhere, like it was simple and basic. Oh, yeah. By the 2000s, it was just like, let's kill everything, explode, unlimited munition let's just do all this stuff and it was a satire of that kind of film but like i say with i think they're called they're probably not called one six figures i'm not sure what they're really called but they're all these kind of military figures that um you can buy them on ebay and stuff i think it's a standard they're large action figures basically yeah i know what you're talking about i didn't know if they were like vintage ones because i've seen them yeah. I've seen all different ones, and I know there's, like, the original G.I. Joes or, like, that no, size. No, these are modern. I mean, they're based on... They're for they're for primarily Second World War buffs, like, reenactors of that period. And the yeah. videos that I've seen... Like, I know people that have done, like, like miniature reviews or whatever to Toy Soldiers, and then you look at their other catalogue, you know, they dress up as Nazis. Typically, they're Irish or, you know, from the north of England. And right. they, you know, and they... One of them was, like, restored a tank... Like a Sherman tank, a full-size Sherman tank. <laughs> oh, that's a bit so hard. just crazy. I've got all this material. But one of them would, was going to these things, and they basically put lawnmower engines inside these scale one-sixth tanks, and then they put these plastic figures in them, and, you know, the turrets rotate, and they do all this radio-controlled stuff as well. But I, I wasn't sure whether you knew about this subgenre of figures at all. I mean, it obviously yeah. sounds like you've heard of them, at least. Yeah, you know... I've, I've seen them. I've, I've definitely mm. seen them at conventions and stuff. And I always kind of thought, it's funny. I mentioned this to my buddy. I was like, it aren't, aren't there 
like vehicles and their guns right. and all their yeah. their accessories. I said, there's those are so cool. And I said, don't the don't the figures aren't they so uninteresting? And he's like, oh, he just wants a guy that's in the army. Yeah. <laughs> I, I I said, yeah, I need like a mask and some like some some coolness there. I don't want to just see see like just a, a <laughs> dude in. Yeah, I will tell and- you this. I will tell you this. About three years ago, so I started browsing these sites or whatever, and I thought, I can make me in one six scale form. So I actually made myself in one six scale form through all these sites. It's in our... We have an attic, too, here. I know your attic was a, a prize yeah. thing when we talked back at Model Royal Radio. But, yeah, so it's in our attic. And I think it was my wife. And this is actually from your... This might be from Cattlebag as well. We referred to this thing as Dolly. Oh yeah, and it was basically. I've got to. I've got to find photos online and share you the photos with you, because this thing basically sat on my shelf for I don't know six months, and it was actually it was a joke because I'd written a novel when I was seventeen, and I always thought, well, I'll just make an action figure version of myself when I was seventeen. So that's what it started being, and then these sites are amazing. Like you can basically go on there, and then I started buying. Little one six scale like Enfield rifles and things like that, which all have like moving parts and stuff. I mean, this is like an obsessive hobby. Yeah, the 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 parts are cool, like all the um, yeah. accessories and uh, yeah, those those dollies. They were like dollar store knockoffs of mm. those things. I remember I I took one out of the package and dropped it. I mean, I just dropped it, you know, hand level to the floor, and like it almost exploded. Like it's. Boots exploded yeah. off its feet. Its foot broke, and I said, "This is hysterical. These things. I'm gonna destroy these things." But yeah, they're they're uh, some of that stuff is so cool, and I'm like, I wish it was a little bit smaller so it could fit my yeah. man figures. Yeah, no, it's not man <laughs> scale. It's actually yeah, like I said, it's it's like one it's, six scale. Yeah, it's it's a it's a bit bigger, quite a bit bigger. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Uh, so do you? So you you made the figure of yourself? Yeah, it was a really very strange process. So they have these stores where you can, like, literally, like, plaid shirt, leather shoes, like, regular dress trousers. <laughs> I mean, I thought, how can I make this thing as plain as possible? And then you have the ridiculousness of, like, tying one-sixth leather shoes. Like, that's actually where it broke down for me, was, like, my fingers couldn't tie the knots on the shoes. So he had his shoelaces undone and various other things. But yeah, you, I basically went online. I think it was about 70 bucks. You can buy the heads separate from the bodies and this kind of stuff. So I just went through a few heads and I thought, oh, that one kind of looks like me. And some of them have human hair. I mean, it really is a very bizarre <laughs> hobby. Oh so my anyway, God. I put this thing together and, um, and then they shipped it to me. I can't remember. I think it was, I can't remember the name of the store for the longest time. They were sent, as, as, as happens when you order anything online. They were sending me these emails trying to get me to buy more stuff. And I was just like, I purchased myself. I'm not interested in buying more stuff. Oh, I bought him a monkey. So they had one, a one-six scale monkey. And I thought, well, this guy sitting by himself is funny, but, like, the monkey is way cool. Yeah. So I bought a monkey for him as well. And I started buying, like, little things like they had a, a computer and a CP radio and stuff like that. I thought, no, this is not my hobby. I'm not getting into this thing. And the thing is that uh, I was recording a podcast at the time. I used to make a joke about this doll that would just stare <laughs> back at me and be a representation of myself. But, it, I mean, ideally, I think what these sites are for are for people that are 
I don't know, trying to make partisans or whatever in the Second World War. But there's also, like, a modern figure thing. Like, you can create, like, SWAT team members and stuff like that. I don't know. There's also, obviously... I mean, let's be clear here. And we, we have adult listeners here, so I probably should point this out. Clearly, there's an erotic, dull component to this thing as well. I didn't spend much time on that part of the site. But, you know, there's a whole lot of additional stuff that comes <laughs> with this too. Um, but, yeah, the ability to source faces and they have i didn't go this far but they have sites where you send photos of your face and they will make like dull representations of your face in one six scale that you can put on these figures oh man that is so awesome yes (laughs) but i only delve very briefly into this thing and like i say where all old hobbies go it is died in our attic somewhere but i still have the photos i'll find the photos and pass on the photos to you (laughs) that is where all the old hobbies get to die yeah, I always refer to my attic as the uh, that room, that last scene in Raiders of the Lost Ark. Where <laughs> I, don't, I don't think I have enough to say anything else. <laughs> yes, no, I know it. I know it well. The thing about our attic is it's actually really toxic. You have to wear a gas mask to go up there uh, because <sighs> we. I'm going to inject the city of San Jose into this conversation, even though I don't particularly want to. We're on a cement truck route. So we live in this old, our house was built in 1912. It's a huge house. It's a craftsman two-story. It's got a basement and an attic, and it's got a house in the back as well. But the city put a truck route in, and the previous owners had had enough. So they sold it to us for a steal, but we have to put up with this cement dust. (laughs) And it wafts in, it only comes in through the attic. So it wafts in through the attic, and it settles on everything in the attic. So when I go up there, I actually have a respirator. And when I come down, and they're all in boxes and stuff, I have to take the boxes off. Because if you breathe in this dust, it's you're coughing for like two, three days. Oh. So in terms of Raiders <laughs> of the Lost Ark, our attic really is like that. <laughs> oh my God. That's so awesome. I mean, sure. not really, but yeah, that is. <laughs> yeah. But uh, yeah, it's, it's funny because when you get things down, like you've got to, and it's, it's a time thing as well. It's like some kind of action movie. Because if you spend too long up there, it gets into, like, the crevices of your face and hands and stuff, and it gets really, like, it's lime, basically. So it gets really caustic. So I have a timer that I put on and, like, a flashlight, and I only go up for, like, I think 20 or 15 minutes at most. And sometimes my wife will call up to me and say, can you get such and such? I'm like, I'm down on time. The respirator's filling. you got to get out. Got to get out. <laughs> so yeah, it's a really very curious experience in Arctic. I'm assuming your attic is considerably more normal. Yeah, it's it's much more normal. It's like um opposite weather, you know, mm. like most a- attics are. But uh you know what I tend to I'll I'll I'll, I'll buy too many toys, mm-hmm. you know. So I kind of launch things up it. So I just kind of pull the string that the gate opens and I'll just wing wing something up there you know i don't really care that if, if the i used to say oh i gotta have the package perfect i said i don't yeah. care about selling it. so i kind of launched them up there but uh, recently well this is probably going like three years three four years back i started wrapping i always liked opening figures mm-hmm. on christmas i knew the shape of the box and you know mm-hmm. and so i said well no one's gonna wrap me these these cool figures anymore no one's gonna pick out the cool figures so i, I would buy these figures you know and i'd have a bunch and i say all right and I used to gift wrap. That was one of my jobs. I used to be a gift wrapper. Mm. So I close my eyes every year at Christmas and I, I get a bunch of figures out and then I kind of close my eyes and I'll, I'll wrap them individually. Mm. I just kind of close my eyes and look up, get them 
covered and then and then I launch them into the attic and then the next year I take like two or three from the pile and I got no idea what's in there and so mm. that's my little action figure treat that's really fascinating I mean I guess Christmas is an interesting period of time anyway like I don't know my experiences were always with socks like I had an uncle that perfected just giving me one sock a year or an uncle that would give me, like, the same book three years in a row. And then you give it back to his kids, and his kids would look and discuss, like, we already have this book. Yeah. <laughs> would he do it intentionally? My my relations are just on a different plane. They're not like regular humans. For a period of time, I went through this thing where I really got excited. And you talk about the Ninja Turtle figures. I used to buy them for relations and wrap them up and these kind of things. I tried to think that I could convert my family by getting them nice gifts every year? No. Never worked work. out. I went back to Australia after 10 years away, and they had, um, what is it called, like the Secret Santa Christmas where everyone buys one person a gift? Yeah. The cousin who was supposed to get me a gift hadn't gotten me a gift. And I brought back gifts every year. I brought back gifts for everyone. And I was kind of there with all the gifts. I'm just like, this holiday just blows. <laughs> but I do the same thing. I, I not gift wrapping so much. But what I do is I will buy myself just a little thing, usually keep it in the box, and just leave it incidentally. And sometimes I'll find these things periodically. But I, with my immediate family in particular, my brothers, I try every year to get them something that like really is very applicable to them. And yeah. every year they don't have a clue about me. <laughs> <laughs> but I still try to maintain... Like, my one brother loves old cars and engines and things. So I, there's a thing online called ABE Books, which enables you to buy second-hand books all over the world. And because my brother's in Australia, I just go on ABE Books and find, you know, engine manuals from, like, 1940. Okay, a diesel engine manual from the 1940s, 250 pages. You know there's going to be, like, beautiful line art? You know that black and white line art that you always yeah. get those old books? Oh, yeah. And it's just like, that's the book. You know, but, uh, yeah, the, the nature of like unwrapping gifts and these kind of perspectives. It's funny actually, because my wife is from Southern California and we first started dating around Christmas time and I went and spent time. And these are, um, you know, like, have you ever been to a, like, maybe your Christmases were like this fort Christmases where literally people build forts of gifts around themselves and then basically pass the gifts onto other people. So you're basically exchanging parts of a fort to each other. So I'm no. there and I'm like, this is like the Christmas spirit. So I'm the, it's not that I'm bar humbug, it's that I come from bar humbug people. I think the main thing is, I don't necessarily want to throw religion in here, but my father's Jewish. So he just hates Christmas. And we have various relations that hate Christmas. So from my perspective, going to my wife's family, and they had everything. Like the first Christmas I spent with my wife, like the cousin had something, it was some toy something where the batteries weren't working. And I took it apart with a screwdriver and reassembled it and made it work. I fixed the piano so I could play Christmas carols on the piano. I mean, there were a whole series of, like, really strange events where I had skills that, you know, were needed for that particular Christmas. And I ended up marrying my wife. So <laughs> it worked out in the long run, too. But, yeah, it's, it's a funny thing, that whole Christmas period. For you, I mean, what were your Christmases like? They're, uh, man, they're excellent. They're filled with, with awesome with awesome 80s toys, man. They're... they're they're just, ah, they're perfect. But yeah, the same thing. Like, uh, it seems like back then you could, you got gifts and, uh, and you know, you know, I didn't, you didn't even have money to get gifts as when you were younger, but you could always get gifts that 
interested people or they they liked and now i kind of still kind of like pride myself in that i'm like i'm not just going to get you a gift card i hate gift cards so uh, you know i'll i'll uh it's funny my mom will say give me a gift card from this craft store and i'll, I'll just print her a picture of the craft store's logo and i'll, I'll stick my 50 bucks in a card with it <laughs> i'm not giving yeah. you a gift card yeah. but yeah. i always try to find definitely something you know like i can think of one thing come on it'll, it'll take me 10 minutes to come up with something good here and you know a person will be like oh this is awesome you know or or it'll be like you know if you're out of your mind i don't like this at all <laughs> what were you thinking but yeah christmas is always 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 a lot of fun always family drama you know mm. you got psych- psychopaths in the family and mm-hmm. <laughs> you know that it, that's all part of it you know it's that, that makes it that makes it so much more better one of the things I wanted to talk to you about, and actually it's funny that we're talking about Christmas specifically, you have a Christmas song that was produced, I don't know, maybe 2003, that I just, uh, like Santa's sack seems to be like a recurring theme through that. God, I haven't heard that in, since I recorded it. Yeah. No, yeah. it's just a memory that came back because I, I remember, I remember roughly when that came out and yeah, it, it was funny because it was a combination of a variety of different things. Like, there were elements of kind of Python-esque humor, but all, like, with a kind of schoolboy filth element to it. Too. Oh, yeah. Yeah, you gotta have, you gotta have that. Schoolboy yeah. filth, the Benny Hill filth. Exactly. <laughs> Even filthier, but, yeah. yeah. Uh, man, I haven't heard that since, since we did it. But, yeah, uh, I don't even know if Christmas had any business being in there, except for a few lines. <laughs> <laughs> well, the, the whole notion of the kind of perverted Santa Claus, uh, and I think I think probably, I mean, the song by itself, but the video in particular as well, was just so <laughs> iconic. It's funny that um, you always see like these, every, I feel like every Christmas movie, it's not everyone, but mm. not even, probably a quarter of them, but there's always like this, this drunk or uh, aggravated or passed out Santa at the mall working with like five o'clock shadow and a beard hanging off. Certainly. You know, I always think of why is that? Why does that even exist? <laughs> yeah. I guess there's a, there's a darker side to Christmas that that song basically represented so perfectly. And I think oh. the whole, the whole Santa myth, like the whole Santa, you know, an old man that comes into children's homes and, you know, watches them while they're sleeping <laughs> and judges <laughs> them and this kind of stuff. I mean, that was embodied in that song so perfectly as well, the kind of darker side of Santa Claus. Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it is sort of weird. But so I always think, like, geez, how many people dressed up as Santa and tried to go down a chimney and died? <laughs> like, well, there are people that have done that, right? Yeah. It's like, oh, yeah, it's, it's got to be awful. Funny, actually, it's funny you mention that because my wife and I were talking today and we were talking about carbon monoxide poisoning, taking it even darker. And I thought, I don't know much about carbon monoxide poisoning. It was on Unsolved Mysteries recently, recently being in the mid-80s, but when I watched it recently. And I thought to myself, I know nothing about carbon monoxide poisoning. So I googled, how long does it take for you to die from carbon monoxide poisoning? A page of, like, suicide prevention hotlines came up. It was like... <laughs> Google has failed me. They think I'm committing suicide, but really I want information, damn it. <laughs> yeah, it, it's funny. I, I bought a few of those a couple of years back, and um, I was at work, and I heard these these guys talking that were like, 
I guess they were like professional HVAC guys that mm. installed things. I think they actually were salesmen for oh, yes. but they they were talking to each other and I overheard them and they were talking about the parts per million that most of these things are rated for. And I'm, I'm kind of listening in and the guy's talking about how, you know, a, a real bad experience that had happened almost was, was really bad. And he said, people don't understand these, these ones you go and get it at, at your local hardware store, or Home Depot, they're, they're not, you know, you just pick one up at, at, at Walmart and it's, you know, by the time that thing goes off, you're long dead. He's like the parts mm. per million give you a headache at, at this amount. Yeah. And he was saying, I said, I went home and I said, Jeez, these aren't these aren't going to do anything for me. And uh, yeah, it's funny though because you don't know much about it, and then it's like, well, but it kills makes- people. Like it's ah, a real yeah. thing. Yeah, a silent did- killer. In fact, my mother has a house in rural Australia, and they have these large water tanks. And the father at Christmas time, the father climbs into the water tank to do something to clean it out. He dies of carbon monoxide poisoning. His brother goes in. He dies of carbon monoxide poisoning. The wife goes in to try to rescue them. She dies of carbon monoxide poisoning. And this is just their water tank oh. in some, like, rural town. I think there's... The problem is exactly the Google problem, that there are so many people that hear about this thing and they're on the verge of suicide. But it is strange that the public is not informed about it because of exactly that Catch-22 thing. <laughs> it's, like, so unbelievable. I think yes. actually Weird Al, Weird Al's parents. That's how they died. Gosh. They, I, I'm pretty sure that that they had carbon monoxide poisoning. Yeah. We should really yeah. know more about this thing. I think we should endeavour yeah. to find more about carbon monoxide on the world associated I, with the dangers. I actually took my thing right, and I was like, I took it off the wall, my my carbon monoxide mm-hmm. detector, and I put it in a like a pretty big plastic bag. And I lit a piece of paper on fire and then blew it out and mm. threw it in there. <laughs> and I said, well, this is what's going to be in the house if, uh, you know, Certainly. if there's smoke or something. So I got a couple of whistles and I, I closed it in there, bag filled with smoke. I mean, it was, I couldn't, it was, it was filled with smoke, man. Yes. And that thing never went off. I, this is unbelievable. But when you hit the test button, it goes, this, this thing's junk. I gotta get it. Yeah. So. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yes. The joys yeah. of carbon dioxide poisoning. Oh. <laughs> Aside from being a boardwalk aficionado and, as you said, an action figure aficionado, you've mentioned film in there too. I wanted to talk a bit about music, but let's go to the film thing first. Yeah. I, uh, you know, I don't, I don't touch. The only thing I've ever touched with actual film is like a disposable camera. Yeah. <laughs> and recently, uh, but I refer to all like video as film, you know? Mm-hmm. But recently I bought, um, I've been buying like these lots of like, uh, eight millimeter film oh, yeah. off, off eBay. These like estate sales. Yes. <laughs> so I got the, I got our old, uh, like my dad was always into it. You know, he shot a lot of eight millimeter film and super eight yeah. stuff like that. And I guess, I guess that's where I get it because there's always a camera around the house. So I, um, I, I always ran the projector. I knew how to run that, set up the old, old Donald Duck cartoons and stuff oh, like yeah. that. And um, so I bought some of these and, and we ran them and my buddies came over and I said, let, let, let's run, let's run these and, and see what we get. And, uh, well, there's some weird stuff and, and some natural parks and stuff like that and some vacation footage. And, and then we get to this one. It says some of them are labeled. Some aren't it says, uh, Halloween 1977. Wow. And, um, we actually found out from watching some of the other film reels that, we're pretty sure these people are from uh, 
can't think of the exact name, but it's it's in Louisiana. Okay. And um and these they reenacted they must have went out and saw the movie Halloween. I don't know what year it came out exactly, but this is seventy seven. It's gotta be close to that. So they must oh, yeah. have saw this and then went out and and look, we're gonna shoot our own Halloween because they have a Michael Myers mask and it's like three kids, you know. Mm-hmm. And uh and they film it all in order, obviously. And and all their takes are really good. And they're stabbing each other with a fake knife. And they're, they're dragging the body into the bushes. And, like, it was unbelievable. I mean, the thing's, like, th- not even three minutes long. But uh, it, it was really cool. I said, i got to get a couple more of these state sales. But, but yes. from, from what I got, that was the only that was the only good thing. But, yeah, that's that's my only touch into actual film. I, 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 I like it, but I never really I never really play with it. I'd much rather have a... Just a video camera. That's yeah. That's eight millimeter film is particularly interesting. I mean, again, this is completely in Australia. It was not there, so it's not part of my childhood. But my wife has a bunch of stuff, and we got it all digitized probably four or five years ago. And it's my wife's family just extended Christmases and family gatherings, and my wife's sister's cheerleading tryouts, and all these kind of things. My wife is the black sheep of the family. So she's like in the corner somewhere, just watching there, kind of looking out on these things. So you watch, I don't know, five hours of these things and they are really, really, really depressing. And you just start to realize that, I don't know, my wife's whole existence up until meeting me was just a series of like family members not talking to her and things like this. And it plays itself out over hours and hours. Like she goes to her sisters who are trying out as cheerleaders and like, and my wife is there. It's kind of, I don't know, 14, what have you. The camera occasionally pans over to her, but it's all on the sisters. And at Christmas time, like the family members would come over and then occasionally like you'd see my wife over in a corner, just kind of looking wistfully out the window. Sometimes she tries to say things and like people just ignore her. It's kind of stuff. And this goes on and on and on. So we watched about six hours of this stuff and it is really dreary. It's really depressing. And um, we've never watched them ever again. Like we've got these DVDs here of family movies and we never watch them. They're just there as a kind of remembrance of like before Tom and after Tom. <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh. That's like, uh, yeah, I was recently digging through old um, old footage of like uh, I actually found like my high school graduation and mm. stuff, and uh, yeah, yeah, it's not the most exciting stuff. <laughs> it's just, yeah. like not thrilling at all. But you but, might, um, you actually went through a period where you bought eight millimeter film of just like random folks on eBay. Yeah, yeah, I um, it was short. I I haven't done it for a while, and then you know um, my projector wasn't working, so we got we oh, actually got it working, so like kind of piled it up for a little while and then mm-hmm. and then we we kind of sat together one night and we got it i said let's get the sucker working you know so we did and then and we ran them all through and uh actually they sent me some 16 millimeter film but i have no way to play it so mm. yeah uh <laughs> but that was pretty interesting it's pretty cool i said this is this is pretty cool stuff do they still make eight millimeter film i'm sure they do i know it's probably expensive to buy it and probably quadruple the price to develop it you know mm. oh yeah no the developing has got to be through the roof I would yeah imagine. i think it's pretty expensive and uh yeah offer what you can you know get on a nice app for like a dollar 
Exactly. So, and you kind of just have it there. So, yeah, I can yes. put the money, money towards G.I. Joe's. Okay. Yeah. What would have okay. happened? I mean, it, it, would there have been an eight millimeter world star? I mean, you, are you familiar with the world star phenomena? No. World star is a website where they basically, it's a series of fight videos, like just ridiculous fight videos, usually okay. in the South, usually involving a wide variety of really curious folk. It becomes quite addictive after you watch a few of them. But as a phenomena, it's just, it's, it's the raw essence of humanity pummeling each other for, I don't know, five to ten minutes a fight, usually. And you start getting familiar with, it's an ex-girlfriend fight, or it's a fight involving rednecks, or the police show up at some stage, and then the people start pummeling the police and vice versa. And I'm wondering, like, this culture is created, the fellow who created it died recently, he was only 41, and... He talked about, like, originally, it's called World Star Hip Hop. So originally it was like a, a rap site and he, it wasn't going anywhere. So he started, like, accepting fight videos and then it just became this thing. And he was talking about the transition, but without cell phones. I mean, an eight millimeter version of World Star just wouldn't work out because, firstly, you're not going to film, like, some fight between, you know, ex girlfriends of one dude on eight millimeter film. You're not going to process it. You're not going to then come back and catalogue it. So there's this whole culture in our society now which is based on the immediacy of the cell phone in the most ridiculous fashion. But it only exists now because historically people just never would have done that with 8mm film, right? Yeah, they wouldn't have done it with, with a video camera, you know? Exactly. Well, I mean, that's where it gets interesting, actually, because you don't have the mass means of, like, distribution through, you know, video footage that, although clearly, obviously, you know a little bit about mass means of distribution of video footage, but yeah, the cell phone plus the internet plus lowest common denominator, things that will enthrall the lowest common denominator for the longest period of time, that is really the modern day versus the highbrow, you know, let's be in the Louisiana swamp refilming some slasher movie with all our buddies that that doesn't yeah. lend itself to cell phones quite as much although people are doing it i'm assuming still it it is great that there's like um there's always a camera around in a sense because you couldn't like um remember being in the mall you wouldn't be allowed to have like a cell phone they'd come mm. or not a cell phone a, a video camera and they'd say mm. you can't you can't tape in here it's it's a, you know, it's a security issue or something. They would always say stuff like that. And now there's just phones everywhere and cameras that no one even flinches. And it's like, oh, okay. Now I can, I can shoot this, uh, uh, or shoot that, you know, whatever I want. Or I can take a picture of this or that. It's like before it was like, so weird to have a camera unless you take a picture or something. <laughs> you know, you're like, uh, I need to get a picture of KB toys before it goes out of existence. So <laughs> leave me alone. Yeah, <laughs> the eight millimeter thing. It's like, and and the video camera thing. It's like, well, you kind of have to physically want to drag that thing around with you. You gotta have that want to do that. You know, eight millimeter. Oh, jeez, I don't even know who would, who who's doing that. You know, that takes like, you know, a lot of time. But as you say, there's a formality associated with it. I mean, this whole family movie kind of thing. And yeah, that technology never really. I mean, it must have caught on somewhere in Australia. I just don't know anyone in Australia. It wasn't part of. Um, I mean, what I did historically was at very particular times, like my grandparents were dying, for example. So my father's, well, my grandmother was dying, my father's mother. 
So we got a video camera. My parents had just gotten divorced, so like no one was talking to anyone. But I had to be the videographer to basically film my brothers playing and a few other like incidental things. And that was <laughs> the first video that we ever took. That's like the first family movie that we have. And then I took another one probably when I was in high school because I had access to a high school video camera. And then I took another one just before my family like split up and went to different parts of the world. But yeah, there's no culture of like eight millimeter footage in Australia. We had slides though. I mean, we, you know, we did slide nights and things like that. Yeah. It's a different kind of culture. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it's funny. A lot of these, a lot of those, uh, reels that I was watching on the eight millimeter and super eight. They kind of, even though they're from all different people, they, a lot of them are vacation footage or some oh, of them yeah. are just walk, walking around their house, you know, so there's some really weird stuff, you know, but, um, they all seem to, a lot of the ones that aren't interesting, it, it's almost like, Hey, I got a camera. I can record like life <laughs> for three minutes. Yes. Oh my gosh, what am I going to do? And they yes. just start recording everything. Like one of them, one of the reels was somebody just driving in a car. Oh yeah, and they pointed out the window, the whole reel, and you can't even see anything. I mean, yeah. <laughs> you just want to capture everything, and it's like, ah, it's funny. Uh, people come become such better like cameramen now. Well, I think you get immediate feedback. I mean, I'm not sure what kind of feedback you got on those eight millimeter cameras, but now you can see, although plenty don't, but you can see whether it's in focus. You cannot, you know, orient the camera right and you get immediate feedback. Whereas I think a lot of these like eight millimeter cameras, particularly the early ones, they word a lot, right? They like many of them. Well, I don't know the mechanics of them, but I remember like some of them were like wind up or like hand wound and you had all these like things going on while you were trying to, if you were lucky, look through a viewfinder and get a rough sense of what was actually being filmed. But many of them didn't have. Like the SLR technology, like literally looking through the lens is a relatively new technology. And I think a lot of these things, they just had like viewfinders where you'd never actually see whether it was in focus or not. You'd just be like moving it around. And- yeah. Or you had to you manually focus it. Or, and yeah. uh, a lot of them just run off of batteries or their wind up mm-hmm. or. Um, yeah. And, and then you don't know if you're exposing it right. And uh, for me, it never really interested me. I'd never I thought, oh, there's. You're gonna miss so much stuff. Just give me a video camera, yeah. and we can, and we can get to get get to work. And we don't have to worry about missing it, or you know, or everything's too bright, or it's too dark, or it's out of focus. I said, I don't care about the quality. <laughs> Put some duct tape on it and let's go. You know? Yeah. 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 I, yeah so I always liked. I was like a nice VHS camera. <laughs> but, Certainly. Yeah, but. At, that's that's always an interest too. I always just like looking at all the new toys and you know electronics and cameras and stuff like that. I mean, in terms of the VHS camera, was this just basically like omnipresent through your childhood? Was it something that you had easy access to? Yeah, yeah. Uh, fifth, fifth grade, I remember my dad, my oldest brother, and my dad got one. They split one, hmm. and uh, I don't know the model number, but it was a Panasonic. It had this case that looked like those those. Here's an 80s action movie reference for you where, like, every 80s action film, it's like, you know, the, the good guy's trying to take ba- take down the, the drug kingpin, you know? And and they always have a, a, a suitcase that's, like, silver and black, and oh, it's, yeah. like, hard shell. That's what yep. the camera came in. So I would like, we, we would tape with that a lot, the case, but um, that thing would be sitting around, and I would have to ask to borrow it, you know? My brother 
he he always took it and, and taped stuff, and then he wouldn't let me borrow it. But if, since it was only half his, I could ask my dad, and he would say, "Well, yeah, he, I'm giving him my half to use." So then I was allowed to use it, you know. And then and then you go out and tape, and then you hook two VCRs together, and then you can edit. <laughs> so, you know. So, but yeah, it was always around. Yeah, it's an interesting it's an interesting format if you have easy access to it. I mean, the formality in Australia was just extreme because you either had to rent it from some place or with, when it came with high school, when it came with school, you're able to borrow it. You're allowed to take it out for like a day and a half. Everything had to be like written down. So when you had access to it, I mean, it's very similar to my early experience with computers. I had it for a very limited time. So I had to learn how to do things relatively quickly, reproduce it in certain ways. But the whole notion of like what a shot is, like actually like, so when I was filming my brothers, I must have been 12, 13 at the time. I spent a lot of time actually setting it up and like getting the shots right. And, this kind of stuff. and we didn't have the, the notion of having two VCRs so you could do editing after the fact. No, no. You had to get it right at the time. And you've got to appreciate it also because I was filming it for my grandmother my father was really angry and he was like on my case and it had to be perfect and I had to like do all this <laughs> stuff. So it's like, I had to like Im- imagine how this stuff had done. And it's actually quite interesting because my brothers were three or four at the time. We had like a fake party. Well, it wasn't a fake party. It was a real party. Their friends came over. They played chess. There was like all this formality to the thing. Are you familiar with the seven up series? Like the seven up, 14 up, 21 up? No. 28 up. It's a film that they started in the 60s in the UK. And basically every seven years, they film the same group of kids as they grow up. They're now in their 50s. It's like a social experiment. So you've got these working class kids, these orphans, these wealthy aristocratic kids. You've got all these kids initially, and then you follow them up through their lives as, you know, they cheat on their wives and this kind of stuff. I mean, it really is a very fascinating segment. But as a kid, I used to watch these things. So I, a lot of the filming that I did of my brothers when I was 13 for this thing, which was literally probably a day and a half, was all based on the 7-Up series. And so, you know, they had them there with their friends playing chess. I can't remember. There was a whole series of, like, formal scenes that I had to queue up to get this video produced for my dying grandmother. And that was my first and, you know, probably for four or five years, my last experience of, like, the video camera. It's got some interesting footage in it, though, because my brothers, I give the camera to my brothers at various periods of time. My wife loves the footage because you get to see me at 13, you know, on on the phone trying to arrange. I used to do theatre lighting when I was 13. Oh. So I was booking, like, a theatre lighting gig, which never worked out. It always, like, was just complete, you know, you'd turn up and then the equipment would be broken. So you'd have to spend a day fixing the equipment. Then you got the equipment working. And then some bozo would come through and steal half the equipment. So you'd be <laughs> filming like you'd have one spotlight. We originally had three spotlights, and then you have one spotlight for a production. So my brothers caught a conversation of me on the phone trying to explain, like, you know, the problems associated with the lighting and this kind of stuff. And from my <laughs> wife's perspective, I'm like some kind of crane. I'm like some strange elf-like creature that grew up in this foreign country. I mean, she's been to Australia a couple of times. But it's like a documentary of, I don't know, it's hard to even imagine in this country what the perception of Australia in the 90s was like for my wife. So she's watching it like it's, uh, I don't know, some anthropological documentary. It's just me on the phone complaining to a friend of mine that the equipment is broken. <laughs> Got to work out how to <laughs> fix it. 
But yeah, it's funny actually, because I think if we had cameras easily accessible at the time, I would have done things very differently. But at the time, basically my only means of expression really was computers, but music, music was another thing that was just central. And a lot of these theatre gigs was so I could, you know, I was working with music groups at that period of time as well. I mean, in terms of your own experience, I mean, music is a central part of a lot of the stuff that you do. When did that start for you? I, I've always loved it. I always like just, just love music. Uh, and uh, I can remember sort of the same same thing, but even earlier on, because it was easier to come by tapes. You know, I remember eight tracks and stuff were all over the house and records. But my brother did a radio show at the university, the local university. And so uh Remember, he came downstairs one time and he seen me. I had two two radios set up, one playing to the other one and recording on one. And I had to be real quiet, you know. And I was waiting and waiting and waiting for this this song to come on. <laughs> and uh, he came in, came down the basement, and and he said, "Hey, what are you?" And I said, "Shut up, shut up." I said, "I'm trying, I'm trying to record this." And this, what are you doing? And I said, I, I, "I've been waiting all night to get this song, and it's, it's, it's they said it's coming on." And uh, I. I get you a tape of that, you know, and so so we did. But I always had an interest in in music, and mm. you know, and just just messing around, and then you know, I took piano lessons as a kid, but mm-hmm. ne- that never went anywhere. I think everybody did that. It seemed like all my friends played music. I had some friends growing up with they three brothers. They all played the violin. I mean, mm. ridiculously, every day they played it, and mm. uh, and I, I was felt like I was the only one that didn't play. Uh, an instrument. Now, I'd always mess around on the piano and stuff, but um, I can't play anything else. And um, I really like, so I went towards vocals, you know, because I found it real easy to uh, naturally just to change the, the lyrics to songs, but mm-hmm, still course, yeah. still go along. You know, and that's, that's sort of where my interest went, you know, but yeah, I always love music. Certainly, certainly. Yeah, I played the piano, violin. I was the school band before it was cut. I played the trombone for that. The trombone's a great instrument, actually. I'm not sure if you've ever played any brass instruments. Never. The trombone well, is really expressive. If you can flail your arms, you can play the trombone. I mean, you just basically blow into it. I'm not sure if you've ever, as a child, we used to like buzz our lips into hoses and things to get yeah. like various things. It's that's the trombone. That's the instrument, basically. <laughs> and then you just change the length of the thing. And I. I don't know. I mean, the high school, I, we only did it for the first year, I think, and then they cut the music course. So, but it was just amazing that I could pick up this instrument and play it like a jazz musician just by flailing my arms backwards and forth. Because if you can control the pitch with your lips, you can actually get the note right, irrespective of what the slide's at. So you just work out <laughs> oh, really? really like tight lip muscles, and then you just use the slide for variation. And like wah wah effect. <laughs> so it's the strangest <laughs> instrument because once you start playing, you think this thing's a, if you've done piano lessons and all the fingering and all that kind of stuff, you know, that's a serious thing. You know, you've got to yeah. do exercises and it's just, you know, it's what it is. I'm just buzzing my lips and flailing my arms and I'm a musician in a <laughs> because of this thing. But I'm, it's funny actually. I've never, after that experience, I never played the trombone ever since. I probably should, actually. I probably should buy a trombone because it's great fun. And in terms of impromptu stuff, I mean, I, through my college period, I used to play at people's parties if they had a piano, but the uh, squeeze organ, the, uh, what is it called? The accordion? The, yeah, the accordion. That is, for me, 
for a period of time at least, I used to take that to parties and things like this. And you could do, we mentioned Weird Al. Weird Al has obviously all the polka music that he does for yeah. like modern music. But I used to do that kind of stuff at parties as well. Similar experience with the violin, actually. The violin is a really interesting rock instrument. Like when it's like manipulated, you can get some really very strange sounds out of it, which I'm used periodically. Uh, but um, when I lived on campus, I had a, a psychedelic experience with chili peppers. <laughs> I basically lived in Malaysia for a period of time, and you, you can poison yourself by eating too many chili peppers. In Malaysia, they were really cheap. They were like, I don't know, like, I don't know, like 30 cents a pound or something. And these were really good chilies. So I had it on everything. I had it for breakfast, lunch, and dinner. And after about five or six days, your blood gets itchy. It's a really strange thing. So I had the highest tolerance for chilies that I ever had. And I went back to Australia and I used to eat in a Malaysian restaurant. And the guy would always say, it's not hot enough, is it? I said, no, it's not hot enough. And he'd give me more and more chilies. So finally, one time I went in there. And he gave me basically like a bowl of soup and the equivalent size of like crushed chilies. And I mixed it up and, you know, ate the soup and what have you. Walked outside. The sun was strange colours. The sky was beautiful. Like I I was in some, what do they call it? Capsicumoids. That's what they call it. Capsicumoid hallucination. And there was a music shop across the street. And I just wandered over there and I didn't even know what was going on. And I came in and I started playing the violins, as you do and after about 30 minutes, I realized I probably should buy a violin because <laughs> I'd been in there, like, literally, like, dancing the halls of the music store, playing the violin and doing all this stuff. And who knows what the hell I was playing. And I came around <laughs> from this, like, chilly hallucination. You can, the chilly come down is very real. And I thought, I've got to buy a violin. And I hadn't played the violin for probably 10 years by that stage. So I thought, okay, well, I can't buy, I can't buy the least expensive violin. I've got to buy the next to least expensive violin. So I had that violin for probably about three years and I took it back to the dorm on campus. And if you play any kind of musical instrument, like the dorms, you have to play things people like. Like you basically have to do requests. You can't just play music. Like you're not going to, you know, Tchaikovsky, this kind of stuff that's not played in dorms. So Australia has all this strange, like hard rock metal stuff, which is only known of in Australia. And I had to play these strange groups. I'm trying to think if any of them made it to... The US, I mean, ACDC is probably one of them. I mean, NXS made it over here. That's a lighter version. But there were a whole series of, like, local Australian bands that played that kind of music. So I had to play that music on the violin when I lived in Dorrance. And this violin that I purchased through some strange, chilly hallucination. But I sold that violin to come here. That was, like, one of the things that got me an early airline ticket to the US was selling the violin. And I haven't owned a violin since, so I probably should buy a violin. Well, if you buy a trombone, don't keep it in your attic. No, definitely. No, I would be... The thing is, really, historically, when I was in Australia, pianos were where it was at. I mean, I've always... When I was in Australia, I always had pianos. And through my college period in particular, when I moved off campus, I got the family piano for a period of time. This is a this is a seriously fucked up story, though. And I had the piano, and I recorded two CDs of the piano music on the piano. And uh, I got the second one, I got pressing through Sony, which was like the highlight of my musical career. <laughs> and when I left Australia, I knew these filmmakers in Australia. I got them all basically jobs and various other things. And just as I was leaving Australia, one of their girlfriends tried to hit on me. It, wasn't, it was a really bad scene. I got out of there. But basically, my relationship with these people was just fucked up. And I was in the US for a few months. And one of them started sending me these harassing emails or whatever. 
And it just became a really bad scene very quickly. The background story is really, they thought I would bring them to the US with me. Like I would come to the US and then I'd bring them to the US. But they'd done a series of things where that just wasn't possible. So there was no way that I could do it. Plus this guy's girlfriend, the whole thing was a bad scene. Anyway, after, <laughs> after a few years, I heard back from one of, or a couple of, uh, that they had destroyed the piano that I'd given them. Like they'd taken like real pleasure out of destroying this piano. And it was the strangest thing ever because on the day my grandfather died, my mother's father, this was like literally 10 years after this thing. I got an email from one of them saying he felt really bad about the piano and he'd found another piano in Melbourne and he'd ship it to me because he still thought I was in Australia. He didn't realize he thought I'd come back to Australia he thought I'd, and stayed in the US. So on the day of my grandfather dying, and actually it was my wife's grandmother's funeral as well. Like it's the apex of all these death and things like this. This guy out of nowhere who I haven't heard from for 10 years was feeling bad about destroying my piano spectacularly and sends me this email saying, oh, I found another piano that was like the one we destroyed. Anyway, it's the surreal nature of my life. <laughs> that is bizarre. It is more than bizarre. Anyway. <laughs> How are you for going for another half hour? I think I'm going to hit the hay. Okay. I think I'm going to, I think I'm going to go to bed for the night. So let's wrap it up now then. Yeah, let's do that. I think it's been going pretty good. Yeah. Would you be willing to conduct a similar kind of conversation in a similar time frame next week? Yeah. Yeah, I'll do it. Terrific. So after two or three of these, we'll need to get into some form of formality of like, you know, this podcast has a name, what have you. I'm going to probably share this podcast with i've got i've been doing podcasts for 12 years now so i've got a bunch of old dormant feeds which is like stuff that tom might be producing in the future and i'll throw it in a couple of these feeds see what people (laughs) think we'll get feedback we'll get hate mail by the time we do the next recording oh yeah well have a good night brandon it's been a pleasure chatting and we'll talk again next week take care sounds great tom take care see ya